This is Runehammer. crusted muds of the Blackpool swamps, with the stick-tangled entrance to the barrow long behind you. The riddle of the Red Crow all but solved. You enter there in the darkness, a chamber with four exits. Behind you, the stick-crowded, slopy mud from which you came, and ahead, and to the right and left, three more tunnels, barely tunnels could they be called, more like burrows of some kind, cut by claws too large to consider. But at the center of the room, formed partially from dripping mud, muck, filth, and the detritus of flies, twigs emerging from every side, the form of a little girl. She takes one slimy step toward you. Unbearable is the weight of the gloom in this place and as her head unfolds in a sickly, toothy grin, unfolding, opening, revealing a mouth too large for a head that size, in that great, gaping mouth, a tiny cubic object rests and begins to glow, and you know this will be the fight of your life. For that object, my friends, is the RPG mainframe. Barely made it through that one, guys. Greetings, programs. Your old buddy Hank and Fairnail here. It's a Friday morning, and uh, well, there's a bunch of stuff going on. This, that, and the other thing this weekend. And so, before all that stuff unfolds, I need to get my RPG mainframe done. And it took a little while this week. You know, there's a lot to think about. We're getting deep on some topics, you know, and then also getting the YouTube's done. And so, what are we going to talk about today? Two things. One, we are going to clean up this stinking mailbag. I think that. The mailbag is so scattered, I'm missing a lot of you guys' important mailbag stuff. So I'm going to actually change our policy, and I'll put a post up here on Patreon and everywhere else that uh, we're going to do use my email with subject line mailbag, and that way I can just parse them out, search them. And so if you do have a mailbag item, email it to hankerin.furinail at gmail.com and just put the word mailbag in your subject line, and uh, maybe next week or so we can really get this mailbag uh, firing on all four cylinders. It's only a four-cylinder, guys. It's an economical mailbag. (laughs) Anyways, so that's a quick just little item. I I feel like there's just, it's too scatterbrained, and the number of questions and and comments and interesting ideas is just getting a little too crazy to manage. So we're going to try to do something slightly organized, which I know is outside of my normal area of competence in this organization, but we're going to give it a try. Um, thanks, everybody, for all the awesome comments and uh, and kind words on the couple videos that came out this week. That's really great to see everybody having fun. And 
Let's get down to the nitty-gritty of this discussion, which today I wanted to talk about a topic which is as old as the hobby itself. It dates all the way back to the beginning, even back to the days of Pardieu and the Master of the Maze, all the way back to the beginning, and that is the so-called, the epically dubbed Theater of the Mind. Now, what theater of the mind really is, is we ain't got no maps. <laughs> or maybe we ain't got no minis. Or like, you know, roll 20 is down, so we're just going to use, a, just going to get a hangout going, and we're just going to play this the old-fashioned way. Well, for whatever reason, serendipity, I suppose you could say, in the past couple weeks, I've had two great theater of the mind games. One was the Mecha Hack, which was uh, DM'd by Matt Click from Absolute Tabletop. And the other one is our game called Sinfall, which is um, this sort of far future Numenera kind of feeling game, uh, which is my old Cryfoth 5th edition group. And that is DM'd by none other than the Desert King, Cameron. So those two dungeon masters in the past couple of weeks have really, I mean, they're both awesome DMs, but have reminded me how fun a good theater of the mind game can be. And so what I wanted to talk about today on the RPG mainframe is what elements make a, a theater of the mind game more fun and which ones can actually be a little bit of a drag. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about the drags first because everybody wants to end on a positive note, right? Well, there are things that are going to be in your live table game or your Roll20 game that are going to be terrible for your theater of the mind game. And the top one of these is precise distance. Any real sense of distance and, and spatial measurement is going to be clunky and difficult to visualize for your players. Even the layouts of spaces, uh, if you're working in theater of the mind, are gonna be very difficult and weird if the, the detail is important. If sort of what's there is the grocery list of what's there is important, that's always going to work great. But if it's actually relevant that this pillar is 40 feet from this altar because of an AOE spell that can be hidden from and stuff like that, right? I mean, that stuff's always really cool. But in theater of the mind, it's really easy for players to either miss those cues or become fixated on the wrong details or to sort of clunkily slow down each turn as they're each trying to uh, comprehend the details of the room because they realize it's like important. Um, and so any sense of precise space. Now you may be the kind of dungeon master who really, you know, banks on precise space a lot in your room designs and how your traps may work and maybe your monsters and even the way that uh, hero and monster movement works for you might be pretty precise. You're used to that, like playing on grids, playing by the sort of 30 foot rule and 60 foot rule. And you know what I mean? But I'm going to have to ask you, if you're running a theater of the mind game, just set it aside. Just let it be. And what it means is like players are going to be able to, in, in your mind, move further than they normally would or use too much time moving a very short distance or whatever. But you're going to, you're going to put all that, all that disbelief, you're just going to put it away. You're not going to worry about it. They're going to get very much into this index card type mindset of I'm going to move over to the console. It's not I'm going to move 30 feet. It's I'm going to move to the console or I'm going to move to the altar. How far it is from that player to the altar, unless it's, you know, like a quarter mile, <laughs> is not salient in a theater of the mind game. And so 
your DM instincts might be twitching a little bit as you're seeing this sort of, you know, loosey-goosey way of space being portrayed in your theater of the mind game. And just let that DM twitchiness just float away. Just just change what you're focusing on and just let the precisely measured space is just going to slow you down quite a bit. Okay, so that's that's probably the biggest one. The other one is detection. Detection is, is a word that uh, is sort of a catch-all for all kinds of listening and looking and smelling and inspecting and doing all this sort of stuff. And once again, what I would like to suggest to you is that your world is not a full world. It is no longer a complete space. It really is just a collection of blobs, and the blobs are interesting. So let's say you go into a room. Normally, a player will have this sort of full space, and they will actually move to a location and begin to inspect or look or listen or something, right, right? But in Theater of the Mind, once again, rather than going to a location, they just go to one of the blobs, one of the points of interest. So there's, there's a cliff edge, there is a haunted pine tree, and there is a weird little stick doll. Now, where are these things in relationship to each other? Once again, it doesn't matter. And so when you're detecting things like detecting monsters, or maybe you're listening for this, that, and the other thing, you're not just doing it into abstract space. You're going to go and look at the cliff. I'm going to go and look at the little stick doll. Not like I'm kind of sort of going to scan the area and I'm going to explore this wall and stuff like There's no wall. That's not interesting. There's maybe a wall as part of your description of the room, but for the, the sake of detection, everything, just like with space, is broken into blobs of interest. And it's kind of, I guess what you could call it is the cognitive load of a theater of the mind game is greatly reduced than the cognitive load of a visual game. And what I mean by cognitive load is the the capacity of the player's mind to hold the salient details. With a visual reminder constantly for them to look at constantly and continuously, the cognitive load that they can sustain is huge. They can there can be all kinds of little hidden details and nuance and and continuous space and careful measurement and all these kind of things like secret items and all this stuff. But when the cognitive load is drastically reduced, i.e. they're having to remember your description and visualize it, they go from being able to cognitively retain an entire continuous space all the way down to maybe being able to retain three facts or three, what I, I guess you could call blobs, or in the case of the ICRPG mindset, three cards, right? There's a hatch, an eyeless horror, and a weird glyph on the wall. The rest of the room is this kind of foggy, sort of barely thereness. And so this applies both to detection and how you fulfill when they do detect. You don't describe these huge continuous spaces, you describe these landmarks or blobs or cards, right? And then also how space is measured. They don't really move 30 feet west because you just don't have that much detail. So they move to the cliff. How far that is, doesn't that matter? Okay, so those two things to me are what's going to really slow down if you're insisting. And then there's a final one, and that is a complicated uh, map or complicated architecture. Complicated architecture induces one of two behaviors. One, it causes the, the party, maybe they pick someone to do it or they're all doing it, to try to draw what is being described. This is very difficult. 
This is old school gaming and a lot of people aren't up to it. And they're often, even I love doing it, but often my map is all wrong <laughs> because of the limitations of description. So that's either going to happen or the second and far more likely behavior is that they're going to sort of remember it for a, a moment, but then moments later not remember it at all and not get a fun and role playable sense of the map they're in. There's like, what? There's two more doors back there we didn't even look at and now monsters are pouring out? Well, I didn't even know there were doors back there because they can't look at the doors. They're supposed to remember from the opening description that there are these two doors, they neglected them, and now monsters are pouring out. That, to me, is not a very fair situation and just puts the player in a spot of going, what? Huh? And when they're doing that, they're not role-playing. So if you're designing your dungeon and you know that it's going to be theater of the mind, sometimes it's better not to draw it at all because they're not going to get the drawing. It's better to design your dungeon as a bullet list if you're doing theater of the mind because that's how their brain is going to be working, a lot like a, like a bullet list. Like, oh, um, we're in the, the junction room, okay? There's a big metal door and a wooden door. There you go. That's a very processable theater of the mind room. Okay, now we're in the chain room. There's this giant chain hanging from the ceiling and an exit at the far end. Oh man, okay, now you're talking. That is very processable by a player. You're in the hallway. It's a really long hallway and there's a bunch of little holes in the wall all down the hallway. So notice I didn't say it's exactly 10 feet wide or it's exactly 40 feet long or any of that stuff because all that is just inducing cognitive load. All they really know, need to know is there's a long hallway and some kind of weird holes in the walls. I mean, poison darts, hello. And so then begin play. And then, oh, oh, here come the goblins. So that way they just have so few facts that they need to recall that the confusing architecture that can sometimes be fun in a visual map is not eating up their cognitive load. And so it leaves cognitive room for them to role play and to do neat things in the, in the space that you're describing rather than spending their whole brain just trying to process where they are or making lists of like how many doors there were and like is there a right and a left turn and all this kind of stuff. So if you look at your, your um, dungeon, your theater of the mind dungeon in sort of retrospective after it's played, it's going to seem really, really simple, especially if you draw it out. And that's okay. And I think that you actually can find some of this sort of dungeon design in The Oath of the Frozen King, right? So if you look at it as a visual, it's kind of like, well, that's a sort of overly simple dungeon. You know, it's just like three rooms and three little corridors and stuff. But that in a theater of the mind game, that's plenty to fill up the cognitive space that you use for architecture and leave this nice big brain sort of surplus to do your role playing, to do your, your character accent, to use your sword abilities to their best, you know, like to track your spells and stuff. That's your other sort of cognitive load that's being induced. So those are my three big ones and they're all kind of related in a way. So complex maps, precisely uh, measured space and precisely governed detection of that space. So you can see all, they're all kind of similar in a way, but these are the things that are gonna klutz up your theater of the mind game. And it's better to just let them go. Just let them go. Your dungeon for your theater of the mind night might be three rooms in a, in a row connected by short corridors. That's it. And that could be a great night of gameplay. You don't put the emphasis on the mapping and the space. You put it elsewhere. And that's what we're going to talk about next.
Okay, so before I jump into what I think the keys are to a great theater of the mind session, um, I'd like to sort of just holler out to Matt and Cameron, who were my, my dungeon masters in these recent sessions. And they did have very different uh, styles and different techniques. So on uh, Matt Click's side, um, we did the mecha hack. And if you were to map out the space that we actually sort of battled through, it would really be just sort of like a hot dog shape. <laughs> we were kind of like in this field, and then we were kind of in this sort of street, and then we're near this like big sort of orbital gun. That is it, you guys. That's it. And, and I'm not saying that's it like that's bad. I'm saying it was awesome. That may seem like almost nothing, but it was a really fun session. Because once again, the map was not taking the, the, the glory for the night. The glory was elsewhere. And so um, Matt's style uh, is a lot sort of like sound effects and a lot of gravitas. You know, everything absolute tabletop to me, if, if they have one word that they sort of huddle around like a campfire, it's gravitas. And we had that in that game. And when the dungeon master is not shy about making sound effects and doing voices and portraying gravitas, which, you know, this sometimes is not easy because a lot of games are really funny. And it can be hard to, to go ahead and pierce the funny barrier and be dramatic and have gravity. But, you know, Matt's really good at that. Uh, Tim Carney is really good at that, too, of just setting the comedy aside for just a second and being really serious in a way that adds to the immersion of the game. And so I felt that that is a lot where he put his emphasis in that game. It wasn't on the mechanical challenge of monsters. It wasn't even on the sort of danger of the monsters. You know, they were nominally dangerous. It wasn't on us understanding the variables at play because they were wildly simple. It was more his portrayal of the emotion of this moment. And um, I think that's sort of, you know, his part of his characteristic style, but I don't play in that style that often. So for me, it was like a sort of a nice bucket of cold water. It was exciting. It was fun. And that's how he made his theater of the mind game really shine. Now for Cameron, the Desert King, he has a little bit of a different style. For one thing, he uh, is very uh, open to players describing the stuff. And sometimes I've noticed uh, Matt do this as well. Um, but like last night, we had a few real key moments of it, and the session before, actually, of like major discoveries in our world that players are going to invent what it was. And it was fantastic. And Cameron, and this, I think, is, is a really a mark of honor for him. One thing that, if not his strongest uh, feature as a dungeon master, is that he just lets us be us. Now, that may seem obvious, but so many dungeon masters think that they have all the cool ideas and that they need to get them out on, on the, the table. They need to make them happen, right? We need to see this awesome thing, this boss or this whatever. But Cameron, if the four of us are all just RPing together and just going bonkers, he just leans back. He, it, just, it just happens. And it doesn't sound, it, it doesn't, you know, get silly or go off the rails or anything. He just lets it happen. And I think that's why our characters become really attached um, to each other and to us as players. And so that's one thing that he's doing. Um, another is that we were playing ICRPG, and Cameron actually, I had not seen anybody do this, but he had narratively driven timers on his challenges. And what I mean by that is not just a D4 that's out there, and he says, the timer is sitting at three, guys, which is kind of what I do. 
he would describe in sort of subtle terms every time that his timer was clicking down, but not tell us that it was a timer clicking down. We would just get sensory cues from the world. And he's sinister with this stuff because basically what he does is he powers up his monsters for any delay that we're incurring as we muck about. His monsters are all powering up in the background. Now we started figuring it out after a couple of sessions, but I love this because this is, again, independent really of the map almost entirely. And it does take a certain sense of what those cues would be as the dungeon master. You're, you're almost portraying an objective world that the players aren't seeing. So it's like a closed room the sounds emerging from a closed room. To do that effectively as a dungeon master, you need to know exactly what's going on in that closed room. And, and that's a fun, it, it, it's a fun feeling as a player to discover that a, the DM already had this kind of world in his mind that was happening that you're discovering. It's the objective reality, right? When a, when a map or an experience in RPGs has objective reality, and then you discover that objective reality, it's a really satisfying feeling. And that's as opposed to subjective reality, which is like where things are being improved sort of right under your feet, which can be an unnerving feeling. And so Cameron has sort of a very different style from Matt. Um, still his share of sound effects though, and Cameron does some really, really weird NPC and monster voices that give us all the creeps. And so that's part of it. But these are elements that are totally independent of having visuals for your game. Having sensory cues that are just fun and build tension. Having cool sound effects, having weird voices. And so the two dungeon masters for different reasons, I think made the theater of the mind really fun. But now we wanna get into the real sort of meat of this, right? The nitegrete. What elements really make your theater of the mind game fun? Number one, have a super strong sense of the senses have a strong foundation of what people's senses are going to be detecting and be able to just improvise it out because you're not having the map tell them all this hidden data about stone and about water and about you know pipes and machinery and all this stuff. This has to be put into words and to put it into words, you're gonna need bullets that will help you tell them what they see, hear and smell, okay? So that's my number one one is, is know how to describe spaces in a sensory way. It's absolutely critical. You don't have to describe them in a geometric or an architectural way. You only have to describe them in a sensory way. And there's a big difference there. It's slimy. It's tangled with sticks. The, these tunnels aren't really even cut. They're carved like burrows. Like the ceiling is all covered in sticks. Okay, okay, I think I'm there. You notice I didn't even say what the shape of this room is or where those tunnels are. It doesn't matter. You're just in a room. It has two tunnels. There's a bunch of sticks and mud and slime and it smells like the bottom of a pond. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay, so sensory awareness. Second one is what you do with your voice. And that means sound effects, doing your voices. I know voices are hard to do, but this is the time that they're gonna pay off more than, any, than ever. It's to do your NPC voices and also that with this, I'm going to have to do an add-on, which is that do characters and monsters as the dungeon master that speak. A theater of the mind game where all it is is like ravagers that you're battling 
that could be really cool in a more tactical, you know, visually driven game. But in theater of the mind, you're never going to get to deliver any lines. You're never going to get to do any expose. You're never going to get, you know, be the villain who reveals his plan. You don't get to do all those fun little moments. Because the only thing Ravagers say is like, right? So consider using your voice to effect and also adding enemies and or NPCs that will give you that opportunity. And the next one is not a thing that will be easily like done as like a tip or a technique, but a huge element of a good theater of the mind game is your player chemistry. It's, it's huge. It's critical. Now, how do you build good player, player chemistry? Well, if you're the dungeon master, you know, you use that tribunal type rule. You know, you make, a, you make yourself a very good host. You make everybody feel really comfortable being a big old dork and just going nuts, right? If you're a player, the way you build good player chemistry is always highlight others and lift others up and remind everyone how cool the things that other people are doing and make what you're doing brief. You'll get your moment in the sun. Just be brief with your own stuff and glorify others. And it creates this, this bond. Whether your characters are best friends or not, your players become more and more friendly. And the theater of the mind is less about the details of the game and it becomes more about the joy of experiencing each other as people. <laughs> That's a very like Runehammer kind of inspirational cheeseball thing to say, right? But, but it really, with theater of the mind, it becomes more and more important because you don't have that campfire of visuals to gather around. All you have is each other. And so you need to be bright and humorous and energetic and ready to love and lift up your friends and, and be honest and open and get that friendship to happen because that's going to be a far larger percent of the game than it would be if you had cool maps and 3D terrain. All right, finally, for my last sort of tip on making Theater of the Mind awesome, I'm going to recommend simple monster design. And that means low hit points, simple ability sets. They don't have tons of actions. They, they may be incredibly deadly, but in one simple massive explosion of, of power or of lethality. They don't have a lot of gadgeting. Gadgeting in your monsters can be very hard to understand when you're playing theater of the mind. Because it, you, you have more detail. And the more detail you have to work on to get these sort of gadgets to work, the more players will either be blindsided by them have trouble visualizing it, or you'll feel like you're talking too much as the dungeon master because how much people talk is suddenly so important in Theater of the Mind. It really is the currency of the table, is how much time you get to talk. And so the dungeon master is talking too much because the monster has three actions, and one of them is a grapple pull, and the other one is like he you know, smashes this pillar that falls a certain direction and all this stuff. Oh my gosh, that stuff is hard to... to explain. But if your bad guy just emits this burst of lightning in all directions and everybody needs to save or they take a shit ton of damage, that's really easy to describe and visualize. It, it's not requiring all this detail. Everybody still gets scared in the same way and still wants to kill him in the same way. So you keep those monster designs really simple. Just like uh, I mentioned before, like you give them the chance to talk but when it comes to time to fight, they fight in a simple, explosive way. Imagine that you're only going to get maybe three things to do, three turns as a DM with a good, cool monster. And so each one has this kind of explosive theme to it, like almost like how you would make a bullet list, right? Like the vampire, you know, like 
turns into smoke and disappears into the mirror, and shards of mirror fly everywhere. Everybody roll to save. Then the next round, the vampire, like, picks one um, hero, zooms over there and bites them, draws, drains their blood and heals all those hit points. It's extremely simple. And then for the third one, the, the vampire, like, creates this massive lance of black energy, and we randomly choose a hero, and the lance goes shooting across the room, and they have to avoid it. So you avoid anything that's like has specific locations or specific ranges or distances or, uh, you know, like a lot of cloning or, like, you know, like anything that incurs cognitive complexity is going to overload that limited cognitive battery that you have to work with, with theater of the mind, because you don't have all this hidden data in your visual. And last but not least, I, I, I need to make one little addition, which is that if you're staring down doing... Um, Theater of the Mind. I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but now I just want to hit it home. I strongly recommend not thinking visually during your prep, but think in verbiage. If you think visually and convert it to verbiage, you might feel quite disappointed. <laughs> All your cool ideas might boil down to some bullets that don't feel like they capture the real idea. But if you do your prep just with bullet lists, suddenly you feel free I mean, and if you guys are like me, you will feel a great sense of relaxation with running Theater of the Mind because you're not clamoring on Roll20 making all these maps at the last second or, you know, make doing some paint on some 3D terrain like the day of the game, which is like what I was doing, like, you know, all last year or whatever. Um, or no, oh my God, it was the year before. <laughs> Time is insane. Insane, insane, insane. So more than anything, though, I, I know that RPG mainframe isn't always like this just vast source of answers, right? Sometimes it's also just a, a call to say, hey, cool thing, give it a go. And, and I think that's what I'm a little bit poking at here is like, I know that my uh, channel is always talking about all these cool visuals and all this terrain and sculpture and all this great stuff, but I, I just wanted to take a little time aside here at the end of the week and remind everybody that Theater of the Mind can be really, really awesome and fun. It can really be great. It's just a matter of embracing it and just making it smooth and slick and leaving that cognitive load open. That's the key. Leave it open for role play. Leave it open for emotional turmoil. Leave it open for arguing over what to do. And then the final, and, and not the final, I keep saying the final, but a way to end, let me put it that way, a way to end a great theater of the mind session is to give the players these massive choices because you're not forced to make all these maps and do all this kind of visual prep. You give the, and you can do this even in a visual game, but in theater of the mind, it's even more important. Give those players massive choices to fundamentally alter where things are going next. And Cameron, shout out to you from last night. We had a great moment with this last night. And it's one of the funnest things to do in Theater of the Mind is to be a player and to argue over what you're going to do next. To me, it's one of the things I very, I remember about the very first few times I played D&D that I loved so much was discussing or arguing with the other players what we were going to do. Like, how we were gonna, how we were gonna, you know, go find the dragon, or how we were gonna take down the evil knight, you know, and like, people can put ideas out on the table. We discuss their merit. Maybe we even discuss how to gadget them with spells and abilities that we have. A plan, you know, it's like discussing the plan, and what is that plan? And 
the outcome that the players have of what they want to do is actually what we're going to do. It isn't just, you know, chaff or sawdust that the DM is going to ignore. It is actually what the DM is going to prep is what we plan. And that's why it's so important that we have this discussion. How are we going to proceed, guys? Well, I think we should go get the golden key that we heard about, but we have to travel way up to the Icelands to get that. And the other guy goes, no, 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 that whole thing's a red herring. What we need to do is go back to the castle and, you know, bolster our defenses because the red dragon's coming. That argument between those two goals, to me, is like solid, solid gold fun in D&D. <laughs> and all it takes is your voice and your role-playing. And the relationships that you've built up together, the history that you share, and it all comes into play in those types of discussions at the end of a great session, especially with theater of the mind. This is like where it really shines, is all you need is your voice. The map doesn't even matter anymore. It's not even a compromise anymore. It's just gone. It's just four people talking. Um, a, a quick note on that, too. Another way that you could encourage this is uh, do a little bit like Matt Click does. Uh, it's also what um, uh, Matt Shaker and Alex Alvarez do, which is give everyone at the table a chance to have their final line for the night. So like, you know, you zoom in on them almost, or you show like, like we say with IPR, ICRPG, we show this sort of final panel of a comic book. What are you saying in that panel? And then you just go around, give each person a chance to, to be cool at the end and to give themselves a conceptual anchor for the next session. Again, a thing that you can do in a visual game, but in a theater of the mind game can be even more valuable because it, it pins down what that character was at the end of the session, gives them that anchor of conceptual data that's going to let them begin the next one with that feeling of being more clearly realized as a character. Because remember, if it's true theater of the mind, you don't even looking at like pictures of yourself or like tokens or miniatures or anything. You might have literally no visuals. And so those lines at the beginning and the end of a session can be the visual sort of anchor of a character build. So anyways, mainly I just wanted to say theater of the mind, thumbs up, guys. That's, that's really the, you're really getting your money's worth on this podcast, right? <laughs> but I think it's just something worth considering. Like, try some prep with it. You know, pull your guys together, your players, your ladies, and um, give it a go. I mean, see what happens. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting really antsy to run my own theater of the mind game here coming up soon. So I'm going to figure something out. But until then... Um, I'm going to get out of here. So the post will be coming up for the mailbag email. And uh, hey, everybody, it's Friday. It's going to be the weekend. So I bet everybody's got games coming up. May your dice roll high. And may the wind be ever at your back. And may the wind emerge from your back. Because you are wind back.